and welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah here with Mariana again. Anything new, Mariana? Um, nope, not really. Just doing the same old stuff as usual. <laughs> as usual. <laughs> the same old grind. Same old grind of unemployment. Um, but yeah, so uh, how about you? Um, yeah, done with my semester. About to do a couple Christmas bird counts next week so that'll be fun i uh i don't really i've only like birded with other people maybe like three times so Mm -hmm. i don't know how to bird socially (laughs) oh yeah i never thought about that i like Um, to do my own thing um right so but anyways it'll be fun because it's with cool people so yeah awesome yeah um other than that that's it do you want to give us some some news updates i do yes um so today's news comes from us from the associated press so just a couple weeks ago a sting operation by california fish and wildlife investigators revealed that an art gallery in san diego san diego (laughs) ron burgundy san diego (laughs) Um, revealed that an art gallery in San Diego was trafficking in ivory, despite the fact that California criminalized the within-state trade of ivory in 2016. And I'm going to explain more on that law in a minute. Um, So Fish and Wildlife Officers... They conducted an investigation on this gallery called the Carlton Gallery over several months, during which time they were actually sold an ivory statue by one of the salesmen. Um, And once that happened, they had enough reason to um, conduct a raid on the gallery and its warehouse. And uh, they found over 300 items made of elephant tusk and hippo teeth ivory, all for sale. So now the owner of Carlton Gallery, Victor Hyman Cohen, and the salesman who did business with the undercover officers, Sheldon Miles Cuppersmith, equally culpable, have been charged with misdemeanors, uh, according to the California law. And if convicted, uh, they could each face 12 months in jail and $40,000 in fines. And that's per violation. And the the owner is getting slapped with several violations. So who knows how, who knows what his eventual sentencing will be um, after they all go to court. But since this just happened, that'll be a while. Um, so, oh, and it says it says that um, that all the ivory that was seized was worth one point three million dollars. Yeah, that's wow. I that's a lot. Yeah, that's that's yeah that that explains why he had it, of course, because he wanted to make money off of it. Obviously, he didn't care. Um, I don't know. Like, I looked at this gallery, and. Um, I like I saw some pictures of it and they have all sorts of knickknacks and they seem to have an, antiques or something. But obviously none of this ivory was qualified as an antique. And speaking of, um, so the law, uh, to talk a little bit about it, um, since, 2006, six, since 2015 was fairly recent and some may not know, the state of California passed a law that year instituting a near complete ban on ivory and rhino horn products in any form. Like most of these types of bands, there are exceptions, including certified 100-plus-year-old antiques with less than 5% ivory or rhino horn volume. Uh, The other exception is ivory and musical instruments constructed before 1975 and with less than 20% ivory and rhino horn volume. Uh, So that's the kind of California law, which was passed on July 1st, 2016. Only five days later, uh, 
people probably know more about this one, the U.S. passed a federal ban on the trade in African elephant ivory. However, under that federal law, you're still permitted to trade in African elephant ivory within your state if that ivory was imported before 1990, which is when the African elephant was listed under CITES Appendix 1. So uh, among other ad nauseum details, um, which you can get from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website, which I'll post a link to in the episode notes. So there are other exceptions to the federal law. Um, But because of all those exceptions and because the federal law deals more with interstate rather than intrastate uh, trade, uh, there's the need for individual states to pass their own additional laws, which is what California did. Um, So good for them. And yeah, so before this turns into another episode on trafficking... Uh, <laughs> by the way, check out our three-part poaching series. If you haven't already, we talk about CITES, we talk about these appendices, we talk a little bit about the law, and we talk about agencies um, that are doing things like the California um, Fish and Wildlife Agency that um, conducted the raid. So I'll let Jonah take over so we can get on to today's topic. Um, yeah, so today we're going to kind of do a, a different sort of episode where we're going to highlight um, my favorite citizen science project, and we'll talk a little bit more about citizen science. Um, so specifically, we're going to be talking about eBird, which is a. Uh, I don't know if there's like stats on the largest citizen science projects, but I would mm-hmm. guess it's probably the largest citizen science project in the world. Yeah, um, and it's one that I try to participate in every day. Um, just did this morning. Every time I see a bird, even sometimes when I go out and. My backyard, I reported as an incidental sighting. Um, and anyway, so so just to give a little bit of background for those of you that don't know anything about eBird, um, in 2002, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the National Audubon Society, they launched um, this website and this project called eBird as a way to sort of capture the knowledge um, experience and then the sightings of bird watchers in the Western Hemisphere. So it, it started off just restricted to the Western Hemisphere, um, and but I mean, essentially, this revolutionary method for collecting data has allowed bird watchers or birders to record all their bird sightings into one common database um, in order to help provide information about bird abundance, which was what it originally was intended for, was a bird was to capture information about bird abundance. Um, But as we'll see, it's done a lot more than that. Um, And then in 2008, eBird was expanded to New Zealand. And then in 2010, it was expanded worldwide. Um, So the explosion of eBird users and the data that has has come from the sightings of users has allowed Cornell and Audubon Society to a certain extent, but mostly it's housed at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, It's allowed them to answer, like I said, a lot more questions. And with enough data, this citizen science project can also shed light on, you know, things like seasonal movement, whether it's annual migration or, you know, pulses in a certain species that, um, only migrate during certain conditions, like for example, evening grosbeaks. Um, their winter movements are 
uh, sort of determined by the, the food crop that year. And so when there's a an influx of um, evening gross beak sightings, that can kind of tell you how the food in farther up north is doing that year. Um, so things like that. And it's also just helped to capture, you know, records of rare birds, which is one thing that we as birders crave. And um, eBird even like allows you to set up an alert for birds that are considered rare. And then, so like every, you know, as we were just got on Skype, I was like reading the my email that I got for the, the rare birds here. Um, so it's pretty cool because then you can, you know, go see a bird that you've never seen or whatever. Um, so as of June 2018, eBird had over 500 million bird observations recorded globally. Um, and actually, in the past couple of years, there's been more than 100 million recorded each year. So really, it's just in the past couple of years that the majority of the data has come in because um, the user base has just ex- exploded. Um, and and eBird has also been hailed as an example of democratizing science, which is what Marianne and I really like about citizen science projects um, like eBird and like others that hopefully eventually we'll, we'll maybe cover. Um, so do you want to tell us, give us some more background about citizen science, what it exactly is? Yeah, so um, as Jonah said, uh, citizen science, we're both very passionate about it. Um, our previous episode was about community conservancy and, you know, citizen science is, is also a big part of that as well, getting the community to care. To define citizen science, it's basically when the general public or lay people, you could say, contribute to a research project. Usually this means they're collecting data, but they can also help in many other aspects of research as well. And of course, this is usually at the behest of professional scientists, although there can be citizen science projects that are completely citizen run as well. Uh, But most of them um, are in collaboration with professional scientists and research projects. So when it's done right, uh, so for example, the scientific team has made all statistical and ecological considerations. They've established data verification methods and have made sure that being able to contribute is as simple as possible, which is very important. Um, in order to get the data from citizens. Um, when it's done right, citizen science initiatives can bring in an incredible wealth of data that no small science team would be capable of, not in manpower and not in funding. So this is how we get successes. This is how we get success stories like eBird, um, which I think is probably one of the best examples of of collaborating with citizens um, successfully and efficiently. Yeah, Um and I think it's my stupid squeaky chair. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think that it's also very successful. I mean, part of it has to do with the that it's focused on birds um, because obviously bird watching is a a big hobby, and there's so many people involved in it. But there's other citizen science projects that are like spiders or things that that don't get as much attention. So, and birds are also everywhere. I mean, birds are easier to see than mammals. So I think that's also one reason that it's super successful because of the, the audience that it attracts, I guess, sort of. That's a good point. I think the, the appropriateness of the subject of the research subject um, also has to matter as well. Yeah. So, I mean, 
there's just so many ways that eBird can be used or the, the data from eBird can be used. I mean, first off, as a birder, it is the tool that I use for planning my bird watching. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people do that, or I know a lot of other people do that too. And I mean, <laughs> this is pathetic, but I frankly don't know how bird watchers got by before. <laughs> <laughs> like, because I can go, you know, I keep, so I keep a, I keep several lists. I have a life list of all the species I've seen. I have state lists. And then currently I have a local list that I keep, um, you know, I keep a record of birds that I've seen within a five mile radius of my house. Hmm. And I know, you know, I, I can look and see what other people are seeing and be like, Oh, I haven't seen a golden crown kinglet. I'm going to go here and try to see it. And then I go every time and they've eluded me every time, but it's a way (laughs) where you can see where there are birds. If you want to go see certain species, um, for those of us that keep lists like that. So I think that's really cool. And then sometimes when I'm, I think it also helps you to discover certain places that you never would have gone before. You never knew about. Cause like it, you can look at hot spots of where the most species have seen have been seen. And when I'm going to go to an area or drive through an area, I'm always look at that. I mean, I like, I go on these eBird maps at least five times a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> not even exaggerating. Um, which I haven't gone I on today. I believe you. And I, you know, can look where is maybe a good place to go birding rather than looking at s- species specifically because you can look at the data in different ways like that or you can look at it by county, what's been seen by county, whatever. So as a, uh, for bird watchers, it's pretty revolutionary and it has definitely made bird watching a lot easier um, and probably a lot made us more lazy too. Yeah. Um, but also there's, uh, scientifically, there's so many ways that the data is used, like I already briefly mentioned. Um, one thing that I think it's very valuable for and is has the most um, widespread value, like when we're talking about all the species that are on there, because you can... I should, we should also say that this isn't just a website anymore, too. It's also an app. So I can be anywhere, and I can see a bird, and I can pull up the app and enter the info. I mean, if I have, if there's service where I could get a GPS coordinate, or you can go and enter the coordinates later, but you can mark how many of the species you've seen. You can mark breeding details and stuff, which that's harder information to get. But you can just pull it up on your phone and do it any time. And you can do this anywhere around the world. And so it allows information to be collected on where birds are at. So, you know, their distribution. And I think um, a lot of, I've known several people that are very critical of eBird, sort of like what we talked about in the past, the last episode about people that are dismissive of anecdotal evidence. There's a lot of people that are dismissive of citizen science because, you know, though they're not trained, these people aren't specifically trained in science or whatever. But mm-hmm. as far as eBird, like whenever someone says that to me, I point to the the value of the data for modeling distributions. And probably because I've been involved in some of that when I was in South Africa, the project I worked on, I used eBird data to help in um, coming up with a new range map and looking at 
historical change in distribution for the southern ground hornbill. And, you know, there's plenty of other data sources where there were records of ground hornbills, but eBird actually added to whole areas. And that's when I realized like, wow, this is a super valuable tool for this kind of analysis. And that's currently what I'm doing as well for the Saddleville Stork. Data is is really hard to come by and I'm scouring old literature and um, the recesses of social media even for records <laughs> of Saddlebills. And you go to eBird and there's 6,000 records on there which yeah. is amazing. Um, they're obviously concentrated, but it they, it fills huge gaps and it's super accessible because I can request that data and it's already in a spreadsheet format and I just copy and paste it into my master database. And it's, it's amazing for looking at distributions. And then when there's enough data, there's also, it's also possible to look at population trends. Um, and this is all, this has been done in combination with like other standardized surveys like the Christmas bird count or, or whatever it, you know, so it supplements standardized scientific surveys as well. And then I even read about on a local level, how eBird data has been used to target habitat management for certain threatened species, like Mm -hmm. um, grassland species like Henslow sparrow in the Chicago area. You know, they can see where people are, people are seeing Henslow sparrows and then target that area to be, um, you know, set aside to be protected for that species. Also phenology of migration, um, which is basically when migration occurs, you know, when birds start to show up in an area, when birds start Mm -hmm. to, you know, their numbers start to, sightings start to decrease in an area, Um, even migration patterns. Again, these are all, these all require a, enough data, which for North America, for most species, there is enough data. When you get to places like Africa, it's few, a lot more few and far between, but it, it still highlights how amazing this, this database is really. Um, and then most recently, which we'll talk about in a, talk about a little bit more about in a second, eBird released their eBird status and trends which is like this whole new feature on the website. And we'll definitely be posting a link to it because it's just like I've been going gaga over it, which it basically provides very detailed population information for 107 species in North America. So Mm -hmm. um, this is just the start. They're obviously going to be doing this for more species, but it includes animated abundance maps um, in an annual period, 10-year population trend maps, habitat association charts, and then high-resolution range maps. And all of this information is available on the website so people can easily access this and and see exactly how their input is helping to paint this really unprecedented high-resolution picture of bird ecology in North America. It's um, it's just... It's wicked! <laughs> I, <laughs> I think having all this... Um, yeah, I think... When you go to the website and you see all of the all of the data put in these super accessible um, forms of media, whether it's just you know a, a high resolution map or you know you you see all these charts and of course now the really awesome um, animated abundance maps. I think when people get to see that, like you said, it's it's just really good for them 
to not only just to see their results. Like, I mean, it's one thing to see what they've contributed on, you know, an Excel sheet or something, but to see it being put into uh, these accessible displays, but also just these really awesome forms of information, like so much information, I think is really good also uh, to maintain the interest um, in, in contributing to this project. Of course, I've found that once you, um, once you become interested in birds, you'll always be interested in birds. But um, <laughs> so, I, you know, but it, it also keeps people um, involved to see their results in this way. So I have not, uh, I only recently downloaded the eBird app um, and I'm still, I'm still learning my birds. I'm definitely not where Jonah is, but uh, I, I don't know. I, it, it's definitely gotten me more interested being able to not just keep a list of the birds I've seen for myself, but also for research purposes as well. So, and also I have a story. Uh, so this September, while I was visiting a bird banding station up here in Bandelier, we were bringing uh, school classes to the bird station, which was just there for the migratory season. The The banders caught a uh, McGillivary's warbler, which was memorable because none of the school kids could pronounce it. And so that's how I remembered it. <laughs> also, it's just a really cool looking bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, it, it was awesome to see it because we knew that we had caught it on its way south to Mexico. Now, some of the birds that would fly into our nets um, were birds that you could see year round up in Bandelier, although most of them were, were the migratory species. But it was just really cool to see it. And then when Jonah sent me this, the links about the animated abundance maps, I went onto it on eBird. And I really didn't know how lucky we were to see the McGillivary's warbler because it spends most of its year either north of us or far south of us. And it's not in this area um, for very long. Uh, so after I saw that, I spent a couple of hours, obviously, on the abundance animations alone on all, all the other birds. Um, and they're all awesome. All the abundance animations are awesome, as well as, you know, the non-animated maps as well. But I I think this one's my favorite because it just, it's really obvious that this data captures the mig- migratory patterns of these birds, um, just like Jonah said. So, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I mean, I they've had so Ebert had some some animated maps in the past, but never of this quality and this detail and on this you know for this number of species, they were just sort of like random ones. I mean, these are so fluid, and that's because there's so much so much data for these species, these hundred and seven species. But I mean, some of them because it's just on a loop. So basically, these maps are looking at where birds are at a certain time of year and how abundant they are. And so there's sort of like a, like a color gradient to the map. So like the darker it is, that's where there's more being seen and stuff. And it's all animated and it's just on a loop. So it goes continually. And so you can just play it and watch them as they migrate north. And then they, you know, it kind of fluctuates during the summer and then they migrate south. And um, I, when I first saw this, I spent hours looking at every single species yeah. <laughs> and I just started like <laughs> sending it to people and texting people like, you know, I just planned your weekend for you. Get some snacks, <laughs> C- 
cozy up because it's so amazing. And like you said, to look at the different, the differences between some of the species where some of them, it's such a, a, the seasonality is so obvious, like the warblers, the magnolia Mm -hmm. warbler is, it's amazing because it goes, you know, it breeds in Northern North America and it's across like almost the whole northern part of the continent. And then you can see in the fall, as they migrate south to Central America, they all just sort of funnel into like the Yucatan Peninsula, basically. And then when it goes back up and you just continue watching the animation, when they start heading north, it looks like a genie coming out of a bottle. Like <laughs> it looks like whew, like a cloud of birds just spreading across the continent. <laughs> and it's like that for a bunch of species. It looks like the continent yeah. is almost breathing. Mm-hmm. And then you look at species like the trees. Uh, the tree swallow is a really interesting one where when they're migrating back south, you can sort of see where they all just kind of like looks like they converge on the major rivers like the Mississippi and the Missouri and they head south along those. Um, there's just so, the, the different patterns are between the species are amazing. And then, the, of course, there's some species on there that it's not it doesn't really fluctuate throughout the year. Yeah, those are, and those can be cool too. Like um, up here in northern New Mexico, we have a lot of northern flickers. And I obviously I clicked on that one too because I clicked on all of them. But I, I saw that there wasn't a, there wasn't much phenology at all in the, their movements or seasonality at all in their movements. Um, but I did learn that um, at some point of the year in southern new mexico actually most of the year in southern new mexico they won't see northern flickers which i didn't know because it's such a common bird here in northern new mexico um and every new mexican kid i've ever met in the school programs i do know about northern flickers so for some reason i just thought it was oh it's a you know new mexican bird but it's cool to know that people in las cruces for example they don't really see many northern flickers and even though it's the the abundance map does or the animated map doesn't show a lot of you know extreme movements it's you can still learn some pretty cool stuff yeah um and i'm trying to think of some other cool ones they're all they're mm-hmm. all cool there are they are yeah. they're all cool and i mean there's there's a bunch where they just go off the map because they go down into south america and there's there's not enough data to model down there but you can see right. where they yeah. just disappear and then they come back and um so amazing to think that these little these little birds do this um yeah anyways mm-hmm. and that th- those maps just seeing that visually i mean it it does more than well i shouldn't say more but it provides more continent wide information than like gps tracking data of spe- of individual birds you know you can get mm-hmm. a f- you know, with GPS tracking, you can get sort of fine scale movements and um, specific locations of individual birds, which obviously has its value. But this is just like a whole new level of insight into the way that an entire population of birds move. I mean, that mag- those magnolia warblers, the entire world population spreads out across the northern part of North America, and then they all congregate in the Yucatan Peninsula, basically, and, and mm-hmm. you know, northern Central America. Like, the entire population, and you can see that. There's none none stay up here for the winter. Um, and seeing that, 
is is amazing um, because it's adding to like bird banding information where like birds are like you're talking about they're banded in a certain area and then you know someone in Mexico might catch a bird that you guys banded mm-hmm. and you can you know say that it came from point A and it got to point B but you don't know everything in between and so I think all these methods like bird banding and GPS tracking and now this this eBird data all these things added together are just it's just unprecedented and I think that I have no doubt that this is like the way of the future for bird research this kind of this kind of information from from eBird mm-hmm. yeah I, to add to that um, like you said, you know, maybe that McGillivary's, I can't even pronounce it. Maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that McGillivary's warbler will, you know, will be caught in uh, a misnet in Mexico. But even that, the chances are rare. Uh, it Recaptures in these migratory misnets aren't very common. And so it just goes to show how, you know, having this precise GPS data and sighting data um, really helps. Um, I don't know. It just adds, an, it, it adds more. What am I trying to say? What am I trying to say? I don't know. <laughs> but I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it just gives us data that we wouldn't have, that we may not get otherwise. Because, of course, you know, we don't have banding stations, you know, all across, you know, you don't have any, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, our, like we said earlier, manpower is limited. Funding is limited. So, you know, we can't exactly have a banding station that covers, you know, the entire Yucatan Peninsula or, you know, all of a certain area. So to have this very specific location data that we couldn't have gotten in a misnet, I think is really valuable. And that's why eBird is such a good example of how citizen science and citizen data can really help us give us information about species and their ecology and movements Mm, yeah um anything else about ebird i could go on oh (laughs) one thing for like birders it also you when you enter in data into ebird like you have an account obviously and it it records all your own personal data so you can go and look at all your own statistics. You can go and look at all your own sightings. It, you know, automatically just sorts all of your data so that you can see like, you know, how many you've reported on eBird in a certain state, how many you've seen in a certain county, how many you've seen for the a whole country or whatever. It tells you like what your rank is compared to other eBirders, like compared to how many species you've seen in a county or in a state or the number of lists that you've like the number of separate lists of birds you've entered. And it's, it's fun because you can, um, it can get competitive or it is competitive (laughs) and you can see, I don't know. There's just, you can see the birding community working on it and you can, you can learn a lot about other birders from it actually, because we'll follow (laughs) each other while like, I'll see, Oh, he saw this bird over here. I'm going to go find that. Or like someone hasn't gone to this area. I go there. I see a bunch of cool stuff. Then the next day, this guy shows up there. So it's kind of it's kind of <laughs> funny. And then you know, people will you'll see something like interesting, and someone will ask you like you know the the eBirders that I know. Where did you see that um, that bush tit or whatever? Someone asked me the other day. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of cool. It, I think it expands the birding community a little bit. 
Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just, yeah, competitive. I'm, I'm moving up in the ranks for Hayes County, Texas. Nice. (laughs) 27 in the County. (laughs) Oh, really? I'm still number 17 in Bowman County, North Dakota. And I haven't lived there for six months. (laughs) Anyways, it's, it's just fun. Um, I, birding is obviously, I think it's fun and identifying birds, but eBird makes it fun too, because for me at least, because I just love data. I love recording stuff and I love seeing data organized and eBird just does it for me basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I love it. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's free too. Like that's another thing about the, um, uh, we mentioned, you know, making it easier. Oh, making it easy to record data for these citizen science projects and um, having free and open access is one of the most important things um, so that anybody and everybody can participate. Um, You know, it's, there's an app, but there's also, you know, there's also online. So you don't necessarily have to have a smartphone. And so anybody can participate no matter, you know, their economic situation. Um, So I think that's really cool. I think that would be the hardest. That would be, I'm not even exaggerating. That would be the number one hardest reason for me to give up a smartphone because Mm -hmm. like, I remember, I mean, I've only had a smartphone for like less than three years. I was behind the the bandwagon of, of everyone else, but I used to have a little notebook and when I was out birding, I would write down I would, you know, write a species and I'd just put tick marks for every single, you know, the account of the birds I've seen, I saw. And then I'd go home and go on the website and enter it all that way, which was mm-hmm. very time consuming and also not as convenient having to write it. Yeah. But now having the app, I mean, you just press the species and it adds one, press it again, two, three, four. And it's just there at my fingertips all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how I could bird without it, to be honest. Like, <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's very cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, so. That's eBird. Yeah, that's eBird. So check it out. I definitely recommend checking it out. I, I've become not only more knowledgeable, but also more interested in birds um, ever since I downloaded the app. So, yeah, definitely yeah. recommend checking it out. And we'll post a, a link to the um, the status and trends page so you can you know easily get to those animated maps and we didn't really talk about it, but they have habitat maps because they looked at where birds were being seen and what habitats they were in and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So pretty cool stuff. Um. Okay, so... I just had a little scare this week where, so I I live in San Marcos, Texas, San Marcos, Texas, and we have like curbside recycling where you you have a, the city comes and collects the trash can or the recycling can. And, um, I mean, I, I, mostly what I recycle is just like paper and stuff that I have. I don't really, I don't buy products that I require recycling mostly like I've discussed before, but my roommate said that someone told him that the city of San Marcos um, actually doesn't recycle the stuff. They still just dump it in the landfill. Like it's just a, it's just a front. And I've, 
I've heard rumors of this kind of thing, and I've worried about this kind of thing before, mm. even dropping off at recycling places. Interesting. And, but I've never like seen it. I've never experienced it firsthand. And so I was skeptical and I was like, you know, does your friend have proof of this? Um, and anyway, so I was like, well, I'm obviously going to seriously investigate this because one that's like i mean that's fraud because we're also paying for them to come pick it up yeah and that's just horrible as well and mm -hmm. i would do my utmost to bring the city down if that was the case because <laughs> um, i'm very vindictive <laughs> or passionate i mean passionate <laughs> um but Anyways, so I, I called them and I talked to them and blah, blah, blah. And they said, I mean, the woman was like personally offended that someone was spreading that rumor. And she, oh. you know, said that that is not true. Like the landfill is here and that's not where our stuff goes and blah, blah, blah. So anyways, mm -hmm. that sort of made me think of this, um, this tip where if you do have curbside recycling, um, you know, put your city through the ringer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Make, I mean, I... I, it's probably very, I doubt that a, any city does that. Um, there's probably recycling centers where that happens. I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't really know that much about it. And I'm, I'm definitely a conspiracy theorist, but I don't think that there's many conspiracies like with this kind of thing. Um, so if you do have a curbside recycling from your city, do your research to find out what your city actually recycles because mm -hmm. They don't, they, different, every city is different. They don't recycle all products. And so yes, if you true. look at recyclables, they have the little recycling symbol with like the arrows that make a triangle and there's a number in it, like one through seven, I believe it is. Um, I think seven is the highest and you can go on your city's website and they may not give the numbers that they recycle. They should because that's what makes it easier and helps you mm -hmm. differentiate. But they'll give you like, okay, we don't recycle milk jugs or stuff like that, um, which is stupid. But yeah, for whatever reason, because it might cost them more money to recycle it, some cities don't recycle certain products. Um, so for the, and then the materials that your city doesn't recycle, then you should definitely recycle them by taking them to like a recycling center, which is easy and you can maybe get some money for it. Um, mm -hmm, even if you yeah. don't get money for it, it's, it's not that big of a deal to do it. Um, but don't be, I, I strongly warn people to not be hopeful recyclers. And I know people that do this and it's unfortunate. Um, sometimes it's just cause they don't know better, but that's why I want to provide this tip to make sure you know what your city can recycle. So you're not throwing stuff in the bin and just hoping that it's all going to be recycled because reality is they're just going to throw away the stuff that isn't on their list of things they recycle. So rather than, you know, just hope that it's going to be recycled and feel good about yourself, do your research to find out what they actually recycle because, you know, you, even though you don't know the facts of the matter, you're, you may be feeling good, like you recycle. A lot of the stuff you're throwing away may not be being recycled. And so that that plastic is on your hands. Like that blood is on your hands. <laughs> 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 Maybe it's not plastic. Probably is plastic. 
but um, it's just it's just a way to be a responsible recycler. Um, and then, of course, recycling is is the last option of the four R's. Refuse is the first. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. So, um, you know, once you've exhausted those other options, you don't have any option but to buy a product. Make sure it's recyclable, and make sure you recycle it, and know what you're able to recycle in your city. Yes, good advice. Right, so... (laughs) Pause for music. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, so uh, thank you for that, Jonah. And so I guess in closing, I wanted to mention that... So Jonah's going off to Belize in January, where he's going to be doing a lot of birding. And submitting a lot of data to eBird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Already scoping uh, out my birding sites on eBird? I will be releasing a couple of episodes in his absence. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to do. But I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to do a couple of episodes. Maybe like shorter episodes because nobody wants to listen to just me talking <laughs> for an hour. But, um, but And of course, Jonah, while he's there, if he can, he'll record a couple of messages while he's in Belize. Uh, we haven't had a lot of from the field recordings, as we call them, because you now they're less doing food work at the moment. Um, <laughs> but so that'll be fun, kind of like, you know, how I recorded while I was in Germany. So that'll be awesome. And yeah, so have a good holiday, everybody, if you celebrate the holidays. And if not, just have a good end of December. Yeah. And if, if you have any... Um questions or comments you want to connect with us we'd like to we'd love to share them you can um find us on facebook or instagram at conservation chronicles or you can email us at conservation chronicles at gmail.com um (laughs) we'd love to hear from you (laughs) so don't be shy (laughs) mariana wrote that in our notes to not be shy (laughs) i think we have a lot of shy listeners out there yeah maybe or you could visit our website, um, which is uh, conservationchronicles.podbean.com to listen to our other episodes. Please do so if you haven't listened to our other ones. And please share the podcast because yeah. we like to get the word out there um, so people are learning about the stuff that we think is important. <laughs> <laughs> kind of subjective. but <laughs> And if you, if you want us to cover a certain topic, um, we'd like to hear from you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you have suggestions, please do suggest. Yeah. Okay. Adios. Mm